Um, my name is Azim Ahmed. I'm one of the emergency medicine faculty here at the University of Iowa Emergency Medicine Residency Program. I'm also the medical director of University of Iowa Air Care. Before I begin this talk, I'd like to um, state a basic disclaimer. I'm not an attorney or a tax advisor, uh, insurance agent, or any other type of uh, money guru. Um, I'm an emergency physician who has some interest in uh, contracts and contract negotiation. And I did some research and homework before I negotiated my contract, and I felt that this would be helpful information to pass along to resident physicians who are uh, going to be going out into the real world and uh, working in the community and, and hoping to get the best contract as possible. The first thing I'm going to talk about are basic contract items, and these are items that are fairly prevalent in any contract that you will see. A big part of this talk is knowing the language and just having familiarity with the contract so you're able to discuss it and negotiate it appropriately. I encourage everyone to have their contract looked at by a lawyer uh, before they sign it just for the legalese and other uh, intricacies of a contract, but you should have some working knowledge of what different lingo and, uh, and different items of a contract are. The first basic contract item that someone negotiating or evaluating a contract should look at is what are uh, the obligations. And certain obligations that you must inquire about or should be visible in your contract are what are the minimum and maximum hours you have to work in a month or a year. Some uh, contracts require that you work an X number of hours per year, and any hours worked beyond that are uh, bonus hours or are paid at a different rate. And there are some uh, uh, places that require a minimal uh, number of hours work. Th these should be clearly stated in the contract as to what your hours are. Another obligation that should be addressed are if you have any basic administrative duties. Some physician groups and other emergency medicine practices require the physicians to uh, be an EMS medical director or do scheduling or deal with patient complaints or represent the emergency department on various committees. And these duties, if any are to be assigned to you, should be delineated in your contract, whether it should be the number of hours you'll be um, devoting to this, if you're going to be getting any type of extra pay, this should be addressed. Another item that should be a basic contract item clearly delineated is if you have any on-call requirements. Often physicians choose emergency medicine as a specialty because there is no on-call, but some emergency medicine groups have an on-call system where if there is high volume or if there's multiple critical cases, they may call you early into your shift and you may have to be available, for example, two hours before your shift starts to be called in early if it's very busy in the emergency department. It should be very clearly delineated as to whether your group or your practice has any type of obligation like that. The next basic contract item that should be uh, investigated uh, is there is if there are any teaching obligations. Some residencies uh, are located in uh, hospitals, um, in community hospitals, and you may have some uh, obligations to teaching. It may not be emergency medicine residents. It may be family medicine residents, 
in, uh, transitional year residents, internal medicine residents, uh, medical students, PA students, allied health personnel, including EMS students. I would inquire very clearly if there are any teaching obligations uh, that go along with your practice in the emergency department. And one more thing that should be delineated in your obligations as part of your contract is to whether if you have to respond to emergencies outside of the emergency department. For example, if there's a code on the floor or in the ICU or in the cafeteria or if somebody codes in the parking lot, do you have an obligation as an emergency physician to respond to those uh, codes or is there a code team or some equivalent? So I would clearly find out if you'll be required to respond to emergencies outside of the emergency department and if whether there is um, liability coverage for those activities. These things that I've mentioned are contract basics and these are things that you have to have clearly defined in your contract. The next thing I'm going to talk about as a basic contract item is compensation. Aside from enjoying the practice of medicine, a large number of us who aren't independently wealthy enjoy getting paid as part of what we do. And it's very important to know the simple fact of how much are you getting paid. It's amazing how many people sign contracts and they just don't have an idea of how much they will be making per year. It should be very clearly stated in your contract how much you'll be getting paid. The next item is whether there are bonuses. And if there is a bonus system, what are the triggers to get a bonus? And further yet, is there a partnership track? A lot of these uh, items can be uh, delineated if you ask clearly, is this group set up as an employee uh, practice or is it an independent contractor or is it an opportunity to become partner and, and share in the profits of the corporation through bonuses. And this is something that should be clearly uh, spelled out whether it's an amount of time that you're with the group, whether it's an X number of hours that you've practiced that allows you to uh, become a partner and collect bonus. This is something that's very important and should be clearly defined. Another item to discuss is what benefits do you get? Do you get life insurance, health insurance, disability insurance, dental insurance? It is important to find out whether part of your package includes insurances that are paid for or is this something you'll have to purchase on your own. Another item to discuss is whether there are retirement contributions in the form of a 401k plan, uh, money purchase plan or other retirement opportunities, uh, this is something that you should discuss with the group and see what the contributions, if any, are to a retirement plan. And, and finally, another item that you should discuss as part of the compensation is, is, is whether there is a reimbursement for continuing medical education, licensure, society dues, getting your board certification, um, these are items that some groups will reimburse and it would be probably to your benefit to inquire about this. The next basic contract item that should also be very clear in your contract is your liability coverage. Medical malpractice is a major problem uh, in our uh, society and if statistics or if uh, if trends are true, all of us will be sued at least once in our practicing lifetime and thus it is very important for us to know uh, very clearly about our liability coverage. The first thing you should know is who is paying for it. 
is your medical malpractice coverage paid for by the group or is it something that you have to pay for yourself? The next is what type of coverage is it? Is it occurrence or is it claims made? These are the two major types of uh, medical liability insurance, which I will discuss later in my talk. Next is what are the policy limits? It is very important for you to know that. And if tail coverage is needed as part of your liability coverage, who pays for that tail? I'll talk more later about what a tail is. Also important to know about your medical malpractice coverage is which insurance company is being used. Is this an insurance company that's been around for a long time? Is it stable and does it have the assets to back up your uh, back you up if there is uh, a successful uh, lawsuit brought against you? And also, when do you get this certificate of coverage? It is very important for you to know who your medical malpractice insurance company is who is paying for your insurance and how to access communication with this company. The next item that I'd like to talk, to talk about, which is a basic contract item, is termination. In the real world, physicians do get fired for a variety of reasons, and, and it's important to know what possible triggers uh, may cause this, as well as, as, well as the general uh, procedure if this should occur. Something that should be very clearly stated in your contract is how long the contract is in effect for. Some places have uh, an annual contract which they renew. Some people sign for a longer period. Nevertheless, you should have very clearly stated how long the contract is good for. The next thing to know is there is to know if there's a without cause termination capability for both sides. And what this means is that some groups will have a without cause or a no cause termination where the physician may give notice and leave a group for any reason. It could be they're moving to a different area, they just want to leave the group. It doesn't have to be uh, some large or, or, or difficult reason. It could be a no cause reason to leave. And at the same time, the group will also maintain uh, that clause or that termination capability where they may uh, terminate you, uh, you know, because, you know, things aren't going well, you're not fitting into the group, um, and, and they will maintain that capability. And this is something that is often present in contracts. Things to be afraid of is that if the group maintains uh, without cause termination capability, but you will be penalized if you leave without cause. That is an imbalanced situation, and I would be very concerned about that. If there is a without cause termination capability clause, this should be available to both parties, and I would look at that very carefully. You should also know what the notice, is, notice requirement is for leaving a group or, as, or for termination. So some groups have a 90-day notice that if you are going to be leaving the group, you have to give 90 days notice, or if they're going to be terminating you, they have to give 90 day notice. And I would find out what that notice requirement is. Also, something to understand is whether there's a severance package. Some groups will give a severance package, whether it's payment of salary for X number of months, uh, continued uh, health coverage, or some type of buyout, it is very important to understand if there is a severance package available uh, to you. 
some groups won't have a severance package and it's something that you should find out. We've talked earlier about without cause termination. It is also important to know what the for cause termination clauses are as well, whether it's uh, something such as uh, drug abuse, uh, getting pulled over for drunk driving, whether it's getting arrested for domestic abuse, or a variety of things, each group will clearly have delineation of what things uh, are uh, for cause termination clauses where a group can fire you uh, if you've done uh, these things. And I would find out what those clauses are. I'm not saying that we're all going to go out and drink and drive and, and uh, abuse drugs, but it's important to know uh, what the for cause termination clauses are because they may be more subtle than breaking the law or uh, going to jail. And you also should know if you are terminated for cause. So if a group has a reason to fire you because you've uh, misrepresented your charges on a bill or, or, or uh, modified a chart inappropriately, if you are terminated for cause, do you forfeit your tail coverage or a severance package? So that is something that you should know that if you get fired for cause, do you forfeit these benefits? Most oftentimes you do but it's something that you should have clearly delineated in your contract. Also, if you are eligible for bonuses and you are terminated, do you forfeit those unpaid bonuses which may not have been paid out yet? That is something to know as well. Another clause or another item that will often be in contracts is that if you are fired from a group or if you leave a group, that you may be forbidden for recruiting from the group. So let's say that I leave and I'm very good friends with Dr. Smith. I may be barred or restricted from recruiting Dr. Smith to come with me to my group. And that is some uh, language that may be present in some contracts and is something that you should investigate. Oftentimes groups or hospitals uh, will have confidentiality clauses which uh, basically states that you're uh, forbidden uh, from discussing the inner workings of the group with other people if you leave the group, and that is oftentimes present. And then uh, there may also be uh, uh, no-compete clauses and where you may be restricted from practicing in a certain uh, geographic area or a town after you leave a group for a certain period of time, and I would investigate what if there is a no-compete clause and what the penalties are for breaching that. So it's unpleasant to think about termination and being fired, but it's something that you should understand happens and that you should be well prepared if it does indeed happen. The final subsection of basic contract items that I'm going to talk, to, talk about are indemnification clauses. And these are clauses that force you, uh, you know, these, these are, these are clauses, um, that, that are in force if you were to, um, have conduct that was, uh, a liability but not necessarily medical malpractice. For example, let's say that you've caused an MTALA violation and there are, financial uh, penalties for your hospital or your group, these clauses may force you to compensate the hospital or group for the financial liabilities caused by your conduct. Mtala violation is a perfect uh, example of something that is not necessary medical malpractice, but it is a violation with a monetary damage. 
and this is usually not covered by your professional liability insurance. So if there are clauses that are present related to this and other similar activities or behavior, they should be clearly delineated in your contract. Some physicians will negotiate a mutual indemnification clause where if the group or the hospital uh, performs behaviors that are considered to be illegal or there are monetary damages uh, awarded because of that behavior, like Medicare fraud or uh, some type of uh, systematic uh, fraudulent behavior, inappropriate behavior, and you as a physician suffer because your group is successfully sued or fined, there will be people that have a clause in there where they're compensated or they're protected from that. So it's oftentimes beneficial to negotiate a mutual indemnification clause, which basically says that, you know, if, um, you know, if there's inappropriate behavior or behavior that's illegal, um, that you, there's protection uh, for both sides. Odds are that this is not something that's going to need to be addressed, but again, you just never know what's going to happen, and it's something that you should look into. And the final word with this is you need to get it in writing. I understand that that in, you know in the old days and in society, you know, a handshake means a lot and a pat on the back and things like that. But it is very, very, very important to get it in writing. It's similar to the uh, axiom that says that if it wasn't documented, it wasn't done. Along those same lines, if it's not in writing, somebody, so, something somebody said over a handshake may not really be binding when it comes right down to it. So again, get it in writing. The next things that I'm going to talk about is uh, basically negotiating um, a contract. Things that you may uh, be able to uh, address or talk about uh, when you look at your contract. Here's some tips that I'd like to discuss with you. The basics of negotiating a contract, one is you have to understand what the organizational structure of the group or the hospital is. Is this a complete democratic group? Is there a president with a board of directors, partners, and employees? Uh, some groups will have a physician uh, board of directors with physician partners and non-physician uh, employees such as nurse practitioners or physician assistants. So you, or is this a group where there's one owner and everybody else is an employee or is this uh, a, a setup where all the physicians are employees of the hospital? So you really should know what the organizational structure of the group is that uh, you're joining. You should also know what the market dynamics are. The dynamics uh, in the market for emergency medicine are much different if you compare a city like Seattle, Washington, which is very lucrative. People want to go there and are willing to um, sacrifice quite a bit to practice in a very beautiful part of the country versus if you're looking for a job in Gary, Indiana. Nothing's wrong with Gary, Indiana, but if you look at it in comparison to other cities, it is a lesser desirable place to live, and thus the market dynamics are different, and physicians may be able to negotiate more things in their contract if they're going to be practicing in an area uh, that is somewhat less desirable than another area. Things that, uh, that um, you really can't negotiate with a hospital or, or it's very hard to negotiate uh, are clauses in your contract that's uh, that uh, 
state that you can't that you, you cannot perform uh, subversive behavior. A perfect example is if I were to join a group uh, that holds a contract with uh, a hospital. It, my contract, uh, which is often non-negotiable, uh, is the fact that I can't go behind the other physician members back and negotiate myself with the contract, negotiate myself with the hospital to take over the contract. So let's say I'm in a group of 10 physicians, I can't go behind the other nine physicians' backs and negotiate directly with the hospital about taking over the contract myself. Uh, so subversive behavior uh, within a group is oftentimes uh, a cause for termination and groups will not budge on, on protecting themselves from that. No compete clauses are often in contracts and sometimes they're negotiable, sometimes they're not. A no compete clause, things that you should know about it is how long it is in force. Some no compete clauses last six months, some last two years. They have different time limits on them and you should know what these time limits are. And then there's also a distance issue. Does your no complete clause uh, require you to practice outside a 60 mile radius or a 120 mile radius? Is it that you can't practice within the same county? So it's important to know what the limitations are of the no compete clause. Uh, in a similar fashion, I kind of discussed this early, which is the non-interference clause, which prohibits individuals in the group from negotiating with the hospital for the contract that they're participating in. So it's very similar to kind of the subversive behavior that we talked about earlier. Groups just do not appreciate that, and that is often a clause in the contract that is uh, fairly non-negotiable. Getting uh, further into some of the uh, compensation areas that we talked about that are, uh, should be addressed when you negotiate your contract is, is there a buy-in period? So let's say that you go to a group that has uh, a structure where there are partners that share in profit. Is there a buy-in period? Like I said earlier, sometimes it's uh, months worked in a group and sometimes it is hours worked. So you should see if there is a buy-in period to become a partner and what that is. Sometimes the buy-in structure may be that people work for a lower salary for a period or they have less favorable shifts or they have to pay a cash amount up front. So there's different structures to a buy-in. Uh, like I said, it could be a lower salary for a period of time before you become a partner. You may have to work midnight straight for a year. There is uh, at least one group I know of that has it that way. Uh, and then you become a partner or some groups request a cash amount up front and you buy into the group. So you should really investigate uh, what that is. Preparing yourself uh, before, you, before you go in and visit a group or look at a contract uh, is very helpful because you'll be a lot stronger negotiator of your contract if you understand what the contract entails and know some of the lingo uh, that goes along with it. I'm going to touch upon more of the things that I talked about earlier, such as the equity and the benefits, uh, including uh, retirement plans, things like that. And I'm going to spend uh, a time after that talking about uh, liability insurance and the different types. Getting back to compensation, uh, you should find out how the money gets uh, calculated uh, uh, for the salary that you make. So some groups just pay you a salary. They just may pay you $200,000 a year, and that is what you make no matter what 
income is generated from the patients you see. Some groups uh, look at RVUs to track how physicians are doing, and some groups put all their profits into one single pot, and it is redistributed uh, to the partners. So there's different ways that people are paid, whether it's salaried, whether it's salary plus bonus, whether it's strictly number of the hours worked. There are multiple schemes that are out there uh, to calculate how much money you make. This is something that you must very clearly delineate as to how you will get paid. People that do not pay attention to this are at risk for losing out on appropriate compensation. Again, like we talked about, you should know about your retirement plan, whether it's a 401k, money purchase plan, profit sharing plan. I would find out what your retirement plans are available to you or if you have to set it up yourself. Again, find out who is paying for the malpractice, who is paying for health and dental coverage, as well as CME money. So this is just a little bit of a recap of the stuff that I talked to you about earlier when it comes to uh, compensation. This is something that no one else is going to look out for, and this is something that you have to look out for yourself. Moving on to the uh, topic of medical uh, liability or medical malpractice insurance, I will use these terms interchangeably, and, uh, and I apologize if I kind of go between the two. Um, so medical, medical malpractice or liability insurance is a very important part of your contract and, and something you should know about fairly extensively and thoroughly. We all wish and hope that none of us will be sued. My best friend from residency has been sued and he told me that it was one of the most awful experiences that he's ever experienced in life and that he would not wish that upon anybody. And that is strong words when someone says that. If you look at society today and our culture and the climate that we practice in, and emergency medicine is a high-risk high specialty, we are going to be sued. So it is in your best interest to have a good handle on your medical liability insurance. You should know this inside and out. It takes some time, but it's well within your best interest. Please understand that the insurance company that you're working with or that insures you should be obligated to defend you against any potential claim filed. Even if it's frivolous, false, unjust, whatever the reason behind it is, they're obligated to defend you because their premiums are being paid to defend you. But understand that some insurance companies, more likely most insurance companies, are not obligated to defend you if you've been accused of sexually assaulting patients or other types of inappropriate behavior. They are not obligated to defend you. But if it's a medical liability or a medical malpractice case, your insurance company should be obligated to defend you. And the insurance company should also legally be bound to pay the amount of damages. 
and this should be within the policy limits, uh, which you should know. So if you get a claim which is well within the policy limits, the insurance company is legally bound to pay that amount. But again, they may refuse to pay damages if the conduct was intentional, uh, willfully negligent, and if you were, if you knew you were doing harm and you did this activity anyway, and it is proven in such a fashion, they may and probably will not pay the damages. There is a difference between negligence and intentionally doing inappropriate behavior. They are uh, obligated to pay the amount of, of damages if it's well within your policy limits if it was negligent behavior and you were sued successfully. But they are not obligated, most likely, to pay if your conduct was intentional. So it's very important to understand that. And make sure that you are insured as well as is your corporation. So let's say that you're working in a private group or a, a group that uh, is subcontracting to a hospital. Not only should you be insured, but you also have to make sure that you're, the group that you're working for or are partners in is also insured because most likely that they will be getting sued as well. Also make sure that you have medical malpractice insurance that covers the care provided by your physician assistants or nurse practitioners. Please understand that you are ultimately the supervisor of your extenders. Even if you don't see every single patient that they see, you are ultimately, as a physician, responsible for the care that is provided. So you have to ensure that you've got appropriate liability coverage that covers the potential negligence of your extenders. This should be very clearly delineated uh, in your medical malpractice coverage. Things that also should be clearly delineated is the actions that are covered. Is it work only in the emergency department? Or does this cover work that you do uh, in the parking lot outside the hospital? Let's say somebody codes in the parking lot and you run out there and you intubate them and you do, and do all sorts of things and the patient is taken to the hospital and there's a bad outcome, there's a lawsuit and you are sued. Are you protected even if you're practicing outside of the physical boundaries of the emergency department. You should know this. There have been physicians that have been sued for uh, statements that they have made they, that have been perceived to be inflammatory. A perfect example is a physician was sued um, because he made, uh, there was an accident and he made a, and a reporter or the media arrived and, and he made a statement that said the patient was drunk. And this was perceived to be an inflammatory statement when this went to trial and et cetera, et cetera. And this patient sued the physician for making this inflammatory statement. And you should know if, if that is covered under your medical malpractice insurance. Um, you know, and then, and then there's the, the obvious things like having sexual uh, uh, encounters with your patients and other inappropriate behaviors are often, if you get sued as a result of that, that is often not covered by your medical liability insurance and it's something that you have to clearly understand that if you're having completely inappropriate action, uh, relationships with your patients and they sue you, that is not going to be covered most likely. So you please, please, please have to understand that. Things that usually are not covered are uh, things like fraud, dishonesty, criminal acts, inappropriate relations with patients, 
things like that traditionally are not covered by medical liability insurance, and it's just best in general in life to avoid getting into those situations. Another thing that you uh, should understand or should consider um, is that uh, let's say that you uh, make a, a mistake or, or have uh, uh, some negligence that, uh, uh, that you get uh, sued for. And during the trial, it, it comes out or it's revealed that you had a heroin addiction, uh, even though it was not impairing you while you were at work and seeing patients. Let's say that you had a secret heroin addiction that you didn't uh, reveal to your partners and to the hospital, and it surfaces at the time of trial. Is that a clause in your contract that says that since you were impaired, or had it had a reason to be impaired, but you did not go through the proper channels of in, informing the state medical board or your partners or the hospital, does the insurance company have an obligation to pay or cover you for medical malpractice, uh, even though you're hiding a secret drug addiction? That is something that you need to know. Uh, it, was it your duty to inform your insurance carrier that you had a drug problem and that potentially you know, uh, you know, you may have made a mistake, or or at any time, even if you've not made a mistake, the fact that you've got a drug addiction is it your duty to inform your uh, uh, insurance carrier along with the state. So let's say you didn't. Is that going to, you know, excuse or or free up the insurance company from covering you? And things like, what are your obligations if you are notified of a suit? How do you Inform your insurance company. Is it by telephone, email, certified letter? You should know what steps you have to take, how in how long a time if you are notified that you are going to be sued. So these are just things that you should know about your medical malpractice insurance. Things like policy limits, certificate of coverage. You know, are you? What is the system of coverage? If you're supervising physician extenders, are you covered if you're providing medical care in other areas of the hospital? These are all basics that you just have to know. There are two main types of medical malpractice coverage or liability coverage uh, that you'll see. One is occurrence-based policies and others are claims-made policies. These can be very confusing and I myself have to review them before I talk to them because I'm not a lawyer and and uh, I guess my memory is bad as well so I, I always review them. Occurrence-based policies are policies that provide coverage if the occurrence happens during the policy period regardless of when the claim is filed. So let's say that I was covered from January 1st through December 30th and let's say that I was sued for a patient I saw on uh, July 4th. And this lawsuit was filed five years after I left the group. I am still covered if I have an occurrence-based policy because, again, these policies provide coverage if the occurrence happens during the policy period regardless of when the claim is filed. Now, this has a potential to have some problems um, if there's a dispute as to when the occurrence happen. For example, let's say that my policy coverage ended on December 30th and I saw a patient 
uh, on December 29th for abdominal pain, missed the diagnosis of appendicitis, and the patient came back January 3rd, so several days after my coverage uh, expired. And they sued me based upon that missed appendicitis diagnosis that was diagnosed successfully on January 3rd. Sometimes there may be some dispute as to when this occurrence happened. Did it happen that whole time, the, the, the several days involved, or was it on before the policy expiring, or was it after? This is not severely common, but there is a, a, the potential for that problem if there is a dispute as to when the occurrence actually happened. Now understand that there's a long tail period for this type of policy that's under that's taken into the underwriting process and the premium rates are often high because if you imagine uh, the setup of this so let's say that I practiced with a group for 10 years and I left the group that group that I leave essentially has to be prepared for a lawsuit uh, from a patient from any time during that 10 years regardless of when the claim is made and uh, the premiums for these type, this type of coverage is often high to protect against huge uh, jury verdicts that can crop up years after the policy is terminated. So an occurrence-based policy is a good policy, but again, it's expensive. Um, it does not usually require a purchase of a tail coverage. So this is coverage that would protect you, let's say, if you left a group, and that is more common in claims made. So occurrence-based policies don't require the purchase of a tail uh, when you leave the group because just based on the definition of the policy, it protects you. Uh, I, I shouldn't say it protects you. It provides you coverage uh, for an occurrence during the policy period no matter when the claim is filed. So this does not require a tail. Now, a claims-made policy are policies that provide coverage for claims first made against the insured during the policy period. Okay, so... Um, so let's say that um, Dr. Smith is served with a claim on the last day of his policy and he informs the insurers the next day. He is still covered because he is covered by this policy because the claim was made during his policy period. Now, whenever this type of coverage is terminated, so let's say you leave the group and then you have to purchase a tail, which covers claims made after the expiration of the claims made policy. So let's say that uh, that you leave the group and no longer have a medical malpractice through that group. You have to purchase a tail, which is basically coverage that extends um, on. So let's say that if there is a claim, you're still covered because you've purchased a tail coverage. A perfect example is, like I stated, if you uh, were sued for uh, possible medical malpractice on the day before your coverage terminated and were sued one year later, if you did not have that tail, you would not have coverage because the claims made policy covers you uh, for claims first made during the policy period. So, if you leave a group or if you join a group, uh, or if you leave a group that has a claims made policy medical liability coverage, you have to buy a tail for the reason that I explained. If you uh, leave a group that has a occurrence based policy, you do not. So, you should know 
which type of medical liability coverage is provided by the group that you're joining uh, because it is very important and especially if you leave the group uh, you need to, you need to know whether you need to purchase a tail or not you'll also find a description of the individual limit of your policy so how much you have coverage per patient as well as an aggregate limit, which is how much during a given policy year. So those should be very clearly delineated on your um, uh, liability coverage certificate. Make sure you have enough coverage, and you should find out what the standard numbers are for your area. This is very critical. You do not want to live or work in a high uh, payout area and, and have inappropriate coverage. So you should find out very clearly what others uh, practicing emergency medicine in your area have as their uh, policy limits. This is critical. Insurance lingo and things like this can be very confusing, so I encourage you to do some research and most importantly, understand the type of liability coverage that you are getting or purchasing as part of your practice of emergency medicine. Now, uh, there are, uh, you know, employee versus independent contractor is, is a, a subset of this conversation, which I'm not going to get into. Um, uh, a lot of my talk was referenced from a, a book called Contract Issues for Emergency Physicians, and it is written by Dr. Joseph Wood. Now, I just want to, again, make a disclaimer. I am not a lawyer or any type of money, a financial um, advisor, and I also have no relation to Dr. Wood or the book Contract Issues for Emergency Physicians, but it is what I used as a reference for this talk, and it's something that I would encourage you to read because it is a concise book written for emergency physicians that will help all of you as you evaluate and negotiate your contract as you uh, practice emergency medicine. Uh, that's all I have for this uh, presentation. I thank you for your attention.